In the city of Leipzig in East Germany, a young boy named Marcus look around, looks around in amazement as he's seeing people flood into St. Nicholas's church to pray for peace. The year is 1989, and Marcus found himself living behind the Iron Curtain of the communist regime. Outside the doors of the church were barricades and armed police ready to respond with force to this prayer meeting that had been gathering. In this church, where Bach performed symphonies hundreds of years prior, a new song is being sung. The cries and longings of peace. Just seven years before this moment, this prayer meeting began with less than a dozen people. And that night, as Marcus is in the room, over 8,000 people have poured into that room to pray, into that church to pray. And to come and be a part of this movement of prayer. Now that's just those who would fit in the church. Pouring out into the streets and other churches, it is estimated that over 70,000 people have gathered to pray on that Monday night. What began in the church would be unleashed into the city as the prayer movement would take to the streets. About an hour after that, the pastor who had organized this prayer meeting led the people through the streets in a peaceful protest of prayer. Police officials were prepared for anarchy, but instead of weapons and violence, they were met with candles and prayers. One communist official reporting back on this uh, event said this, We were prepared for every eventuality, but not for candles and not for prayers. Surprisingly, as the movement marched in front of the police headquarters, no shots were fired. No tensions were escalated because as the people walked in front of the place, all um, 300,000 at this point began to pray for no violence. And so what began as a small prayer meeting on a Monday night seven years prior with less than a dozen people had erupted into the streets with estimated over 300,000 people united in one prayer, a prayer for peace. Four weeks later to that very day, the Berlin Wall fell. And the people of Leipzig experienced freedom from their oppressive regime. Their prayers were answered. In our day-to-day lives, we're faced with the question, do our prayers make a difference? The people of Leipzig say they do. Some journalists and historians have named this prayer rally as the tipping point for the fall of the Berlin Wall. Now, others who have talked about this story and have researched this may say that the political collapse um, of the communist regime was due to all sorts of other influences, people in high places that ultimately led to the Berlin Wall Wall falling. But for Marcus and the other 300,000, they knew their prayers made a difference. Prayer has also made a difference in the story of our community. Um, I'm, I'm not one for a lot of reflecting, which is not a good part of my personality, but I've been trying to be better about that lately. And I was kind of thinking and reflecting about our story. And as we've been building out the prayer room, it's, it's uh, the, 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 the smell of drywall and getting the phone calls about all the things that are wrong in the room that we're renovating reminded me of when we first moved into this building. So it was the middle of the pandemic, our, uh, the, the space that we were leasing was owned by the city, so we lost any place to meet. And we were purely meeting in two community groups at the time. And uh, I was preaching to an iPhone in my office, which is not recommended at all. 
Um, that's actually not fair. Calgary was with me. So I was preaching to Calgary in my office, um, and the iPhone was there. Um, and he had to deal with all my neuroticism and idiosyncrasies and frustration about how the sermon was coming out, etc. And our, our church was not set up to go online, to say the very least. Hence me in Calgary, in my office. And if you look back, it looks like I'm a hostage video. We have this white background <laughs> behind me. We did the best we could, don't judge us. But we were just not set up for this kind of thing, okay? And so a, a couple of months in, um, it's in the middle of summer of that pandemic, our leadership team came together and we're just like, guys, what are we going to do? We're not really set up to go online. We're not super production savvy. We have exactly zero budget to be able to expand any sort of online outreach. And I was quickly getting fatigued preaching to just Calgary. And he was quickly getting fatigued hearing me preach every week just to him. And so we came together and we said, all right, what are we going to do? And the honest conversation at that meeting was, is it time for us to close up shop? Like, is it time for us just to say, like, hey, we didn't make it through, it didn't work, you know? And so we came together at that prayer meeting, and it was a simple prayer, but we prayed, God, we need you to do something. A few weeks later, I'm driving home on 47, and we passed by this building. Now, I had called about this building previously, and he had set a number, that which we certainly couldn't afford, and so I said, thank you, have a nice day, right? And that was kind of the end of the conversation. But I pulled in the parking lot again, and with that prayer that we just prayed, I said, it's worth a shot. So I gave him a call, and a few days later, he met me here uh, with some of our leadership team. And we walked the building, and we just shot out a number, one that was way below what he was asking and way above what we could afford. But we said, you know what? We'll meet somewhere in the middle. And so we just shot out a number, and he accepted it to our utter shock. And so we had a building, a building that we couldn't afford, however, and a building that needed a whole lot of maintenance and a whole lot of work. And so our journey had just been cut out for us. So we gather again in this room to pray, God, would you show up? And so this is a, build, this is a picture of what the building looked like when we first got in here. Um, it was everything. It had been a restaurant, a dojo, a bunch of other things, an indoor flea market I heard before. I don't know. It's been everything under the sun, and now it's a church. And so as you can see, she ain't as pretty as she is today, right, because of so much hard work. But we needed some sort of a budget to come together and do this. So we prayed, we put together preliminary numbers of what we think it would cost, and we just put it out there with nothing in the bank, really. And within a few days, we met that goal. And we were able to come into this building, and we were able to start renovating and start being here. And so these are just two stories. We could spend the whole time talking about how many times God has answered the prayers of his people. And so if you're wondering, do prayers make a difference, you're sitting in it right now. This was almost not a reality, but by the grace and power of God, we're in it. We're living in this reality. Now, the cynics, I hear you. You could say all sorts of things like, well, was it really this? Was it really that? You know, uh, there's, wasn't there these other things, the generosity of others? Yes, it was all those things. But as believers, we see God moving in the midst of it all. I love this quote, and I think about it often, from Archbishop William Temple. He says this, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. And I love that. That is the simplest way to express what it's like in, in prayer. But there are still some who are in this room are under the weight of cynicism and who would easily answer both of the stories that I've just brought up with reasonableness. 
And so for a moment, I want to name exactly what that is. It is a cynical response. And the Screw Tape Letters, it's a famous book by C.S. Lewis. If you haven't read it, please do. It is a fictional book, but essentially C.S. Lewis writes from the position of a senior demon writing to a younger demon about how their, what their operation is like. And so it's, it's purely fictional, but it gives a beautiful insight. And here in this section, uh, C.S. Lewis is writing on the topic of prayer, and he says this, worry him with the haunting suspicion that the practice is absurd and can have no objective result. Don't forget to use the heads I win, tails you lose argument. If the thing he prays for doesn't happen, then that is some proof that petitionary prayers don't work. If it does happen, he will, of course, be able to see some of the physical causes which led up to it, and therefore, it would have happened anyway. And thus, granted prayer becomes just as good as proof as the denied one that prayers are ineffective. We are playing exactly into the schemes and plans of the enemy when we dismiss moves of God with cynicism. There are those for whom cynicism has so captivated their hearts, there is no room for wonder. And here's the thing. It's easy to justify cynicism, isn't it? Because it feels safe. It feels responsible to think through all the things that happen and just explain it away with reasonableness. But here's what I found. That for most people, cynicism is born in the place of pain. And cynicism presents this illusion of safety but really it is a projection of that pain. Most cynics can trace the birth of their cynicism to a moment where they were filled with disappointment and disillusionment from God. And so they wrote off God and prayer all together because they prayed and they asked and it didn't go their way, so they made up their minds. And so they hide behind their reason and their logic because they believe that it shields them from the unpredictable and dangerous world we live in. But here's the truth. The things we cherish the most in this life aren't logical or reasonable. And here's what I mean. Love, celebration, beauty, joy, all of these things that make life worth living are unreasonable, illogical. If you were to put them down on paper, they make no sense, but they are cause for joy. And so it is not for us to throw away things like logic and reason because these are absolutely tools God has given us to navigate those world, this world. But hear me in this. They aren't the only tools. And so here's my petition to the cynic, the skeptic this morning. Make room for wonder. Make room for wonder. Yes, bring your logic. Yes, bring your reason. Bring all the faculties God has given you, but that includes bringing your wonder. Anybody who's done anything of consequence, when they retell their story, there's always these pivotal moments in their life where they have no explanation. It's illogical, it's unreasonable, it doesn't make sense, and they chalk it up to luck or to fate or to destiny or to God or whatever, but here's what it fundamentally is, wonder. I'm saying make room in your life for that because it exists whether you want to acknowledge it or not. So my plea today is this, make room for wonder. With all that being said, we're left with the question, what difference does prayer actually make? I love this quote by Karl Barth who is one of the greatest theologians of our time. He says this, to clasp the hands in prayer 
is the beginning of the uprising against the disorder of the world. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. I could spend the rest of our time talking about how any time there was a great move of God, it was always preceded by prayer. We could talk about the civil rights movement, the prayer movement in Bucharest, the Polish resistance, the confessing church in Nazi Germany, the anti-apartheid movement in South, Af- in South Africa. Because any time there is a great move of God, it is always first preceded by a great call to prayer. And this is what I believe our church is entering into right now. It is entering into the call to pray. It is entering into, the, into going into the secret place. It is an uprising against the disorder of the world that God is inviting us into. And the only question is this, will you take part in it? Will you join in what God is up to in the world? Because prayer is the way we partner with God. Prayer is the way we partner with God with what he is up to in the world. Eugene Peterson says this, The assumption of spirituality is that always God is doing something before I know it. So the task is not to get God to do something I think needs to be done, but to become aware of what God is doing so that I can respond to it and participate in it and take delight in it. And this is my prayer for this season, that we would jump into all that God is doing and it would look like delight. It would look like joy, not legalism or obligation or religious piety, but joy would be erupting from our house. Now, for us to explain and understand prayer as partnership, we must understand the world we live in and develop a theology of partnership before we get there. And so to begin this conversation, I want us to look at the life of Jesus. Here's a question for you. Do you think prayer mattered to Jesus? Do you think that Jesus thought prayer made a difference? Now, before you're just like, you give the Sunday school answer, Yes, of course, Jesus thought. I want you to really sit with that for a moment. Do you think that Jesus actually thought that? Well, let's look at his life. Prayer seems to be the very center point of the life of Jesus. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus is dipping out to pray. Whether it is early in the morning before his disciples are up, whether it's after a long day of ministry in the kingdom of God and healing, he sneaks away to a mountainside to pray. Whether it's as a faithful Jew showing up to the fixed hour prayer three times a day at the temple. Whether it's through his teachings where he taught multiple times on praying and persevering in prayer and the posture of prayer. And we have a few of those prayers that Jesus prayed recorded in the scriptures. We see all throughout Jesus' life, he's getting away to the secret place to pr- pray. Clearly, if we examine Jesus' life, it mattered, prayer mattered deeply to him. And it was Jesus' prayer life that compelled his disciples to ask him, teach us to pray. Now notice, Jesus did miracles, raised dead people, multiplied food, healed lepers. But his disciples never asked for him to show them how to do that. The one thing the disciples say, teach us to do, is to pray. Because the disciples understood something that we must. Prayer is at the center point of all of that. Prayer is the birthplace of all of that. To deal with those other things is just to to deal with the fruit of it. But to get to the root of it, it's always prayer. And they must learn this mystery from Jesus of how to pray. And so for Jesus, prayer wasn't something good for him to do. 
It was essential for his life. He sacrificed everything to be alone with the Father. And it seemed not like a chore, but joy. In reflecting on the question, does prayer make a difference, and contemplating prayer in the life of Jesus, Philip Yancey, one of my favorite authors on prayer, says this. When doubts creep in, and I wonder whether prayer is a sanctified form of talking to myself, I remind myself of the Son of God, that the Son of God, who has spoken worlds into being and sustains all that exists, felt a compelling need to pray. He prayed as if it made a difference, as if the time he devoted to prayer mattered every bit as much as the time he devoted to caring for people. Jesus understood something beautiful and marvelous about prayer, that it was not simply a good practice to do, but an invitation to accept. And the invitation is to join God in what he's up to in the, in the world. Now for a theology of partnership. I do this all the time to you guys, and I feel bad, but all this always begins back in Genesis. And in the beginning, God creates humanity to rule and reign with him. God establishes humans as his partners on earth. The entire biblical narrative is God choosing people to work through his purposes in the world. You may not like the way that it was set up this way. You may not think it's efficient, and that I agree with you, but it's the way in which God has set the world up. Now, yes, God could have chosen to make everything automated and without flaw, but for it to be without flaw means for it to be without choice. And for it to be without choice, it means it must be void of love because love requires choice. Again, Philip Yancey says this, God cho chose a different style of governing the world, a partnership which relies on human agency and choice. God granted the favor of favored human species the dignity of causality, to borrow from Pascal. And giving us the responsibility of being his co-rulers, God gives us the choice to choose between good and evil, wisdom and folly. And it's like the second he gives that responsibility over, you flip the page in the scriptures, and the next moment is Adam and Eve abdicating that responsibility and failing in their choice. And so it is at the moment the earth is created that way and God shares that power, it seems that power becomes corrupted. And so Abraham Joshua Heschel says this, the universe is done, the great masterpiece is still undone. Still in the process of being created is history. For accomplishing his grand design, God needs the help of man. You see, humans have the capacity to choose evil and bring corruption and death and loss into the world. But they also have the capacity to choose what is good and bring forth the kingdom and beauty and wonder. Now, when Abraham Joshua Heschel says that God needs the help of man, it's not that God is powerless. It's not that he's unable to do so. It's that God needs, needs the help of man, not because he couldn't do it without us, because, but because this, he doesn't want to. He wants to partner with humans because the heart of God is that in sharing, and he longs to share his creation with us. C.S. Lewis, for he seems to do nothing of himself which he could possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do so slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfect, perfectly in the twinkling of an eye. He allows us to neglect what, we could, what he could have us do or to fail. 
And perhaps we don't, realize, we don't fully realize the problem, so to call it, of enabling finite free wills to coexist with omnipotence. It seems to involve at every moment a sort of divine abdication. God is constantly inviting humanity into the very things he's up to in the world because he loves us and wants to share in his world with us. Now, I apologize for all the parenting analogies lately, but this is just how God has been teaching me. My kids want to do everything with me. And if you're a parent, you know if you bring a kid along for the ride, you're going to go five times slower, it's going to be way less efficient, and the job's not going to get done properly. It is what it is, right? Anything from simply, like, making breakfast in the morning to working on something for the vehicle. Like, I'm asking for a wrench for two and a half hours. You know what I mean? It's like, it's one of those things. And so if I want to move fast, if I want to be efficient, the kids don't come. You know what I mean? If that's the goal. But if the goal is for me to be with my kids, then I have to realize that that process is going to go painfully slow. Now, my heart as a father is to invite my kids into my world with whatever it is that I'm doing. And so, yes, I could have done it much faster. And, yes, there wouldn't be eggshells in the omelet. And, yet, you know, all those things. But what means more to me is inviting my kids into my world. And so in the same way as me as an earthly parent feel that way, the same is of God. God invites us to partner with him, not because he's unable to do what he desires, but because he's unwilling to do it without us. Now, there's a line from Jesus that has tripped people up for some time in regards to prayer. And it has a lot more to do with the pre-existing theodicy, which is a fancy way of saying the understanding about how a good God is reconciled with the broken and fallen world. So it has much more to do with that. But I do want to bring it up here because I realize that it's a real struggle for some. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 8. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Has the thought ever entered your mind, why am I praying if God already knows? Right? You come to sit and pray and you're like, if he already knows, doesn't this just kind of waste of time? You know, like, it's really crossed your mind. It's definitely crossed mine. And if not, maybe you guys are just all better than me and I need to get on your level. But it has crossed my mind. And so a lot of people read this line and think, if God knows what I'm going to pray before I pray it, why on earth would I do it? And underneath that, there's an underlying theology about how the world works and if God can be changed through our prayers. Now, to put this verse in context, Jesus is talking about babbling pagans, not um, believers when they pray. He's saying that the, the pagans come, and they have all of these words, and they muster up all this stuff to try and entertain the gods. And he's like, it's not this way with Yahweh. Just come and bring what's in your heart. And the goal of this thing is not a hindrance to prayer, like, hey, he already knows, so don't worry about it. But it's actually an invitation. Hey, he already knows, so don't worry about it. If you don't get all the words out, if you don't adequately express your heart, if you don't perfectly say that which is in you, no worries. He knows what you need before you ask him. So if all you could possibly muster up is a groan or a cry or a simple phrase like, God, please help, God knows. And so it's supposed to invite you into prayer, not push you away from it. Now, that's what Jesus is saying in this line. The other half of that is we don't have time this morning to explore God's involvement in the world as it pertains to evil. We will explore this um, in the future, but we don't have time to do this today. But here's what I want to say. Prayer absolutely changes the heart of God. Now, for some, that might be like red flags. Whoa, what about it says in the scriptures? I, the Lord, do not change. What are you going to do about that? 
Glad you're here. Got some answers for you. So throughout the scriptures, we see exactly this, people changing the heart of God. Now, people of a certain theological bent like to take these things and do some verbal judo to make him work and be like, well, it was actually just a test. God was going to do it all along, except that's not what the scriptures say. Just as many scriptures that say that God doesn't change, there are scriptures that say that God does change. There's a handful of them that says God changed his mind. What do you do with that? Right? A perfect example of this is uh, Moses pleading on behalf of Israel. Moses, uh, the Israelites have been rebellious. They've worshipped other gods. They have absolutely rejected Yahweh and have forgotten all about him. And Yahweh's like, look, time to hit a restart button, right? He's like, we're going to start over with, we're going to get rid of all these peeps. I'm going to start with you, Moses. We're starting all the way over. And Moses is like, please don't do that. And they engage in this conversation where Moses pleads with God and God says, you know what? You're right. I won't do it. What do you do with that? Right? And so there might be this internal angst beginning like, oh, what do we do with a God who doesn't change and pray? Here's what you need to know. God doesn't change in the fact that he is always merciful, loving, and kind. And that always means it changes your experience of him. And so God sticks truest to his eternal qualities like being loving and merciful and gracious. And so when a sinner repents, it is God's obligation based on those eternal qualities to forgive them, to extend mercy, because that is who he is. And so God can both be unchanging in his qualities, but changing in his experience and in his actions. And that's what we see all throughout the scriptures. Now, again, we don't have too much time to stay there, but I love this quote from Dallas Willard. He says this, God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he's answering our prayer when he's only doing what he was going to do anyway. All requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a specter or ghost that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. Of course, this is not the biblical idea of prayer, nor is it the idea of people for whom prayer is a vital part of life. The stories of the scriptures is that God is always using broken and bent tools to build his kingdom. They're partnering with him in prayer. Now, does this mean that God only ever works through humanity and never intercedes into time? Of course not. There's plenty of those examples. But those are called miracles, meaning it doesn't happen all the time, nor does it happen that way most of the time. It is, in its essence, miraculous because it's not the way that God typically works. Again, Philip Yancey, at various times, according to the biblical record, God has indeed played a direct role in manipulating natural events, causing a drought or a plague of locusts, reversing the, curse, uh, the course of a disease and disability, even respiring life to a corpse. Apart from these rare events called miracles, however, the Bible emphasizes an ongoing providence of God's will being done through the common course of nature and ordinary human activity, rain falling and seed sprouting, farmers planting and harvesting, the strong caring for the weak, the haves giving to the have-nots, the healthy ministering to the sick, 
We tend to think to place God's activity in a different category from natural or human activity. The Bible tends to draw them together. Somehow, God works in all of creation, all of history, to bring about ultimate goals. The act of prayer brings together creator and creature, eternity and time, and all the fathomless mystery implied by that convergence. Prayer is where we intersect and partner with God with what he's up to in the world. God is inviting us to see the world the way that he does and share in his vision and capture his heart and bring about the things he desires, for the, he desires to bring to bear on the world. This is why Jesus' disciples come to him, and when, when Jesus' disciples come to him and ask him to teach them to pray, Jesus teaches them this line, which is our teaching text. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we could spend the whole series on this line and on the Lord's Prayer. However, there's a few things I want to say about this line this morning. First, this presupposes that God's kingdom and will currently isn't being done on earth as it is in heaven. It doesn't mean it's not being done at all. It's just not being done in totality, right? This is why Jesus calls us to pray this prayer. Jesus is saying here that heaven and or God's space where he rules and reigns, his will is being perfectly established there. On earth, that is not the case. So we are to pray that God's will be done and his kingdom come like it is in heaven here on earth because it's currently not being done that same way. Secondarily, Jesus is inviting us to, to realize that our prayers play a part in the kingdom coming. This is why he's saying, hey, when you pray, pray this way because it matters, because it makes a difference. God is teaching us to pray for God's will to be done because it's not here fully. And that our prayers, our prayers play a vital role in what's happening here and now. Now, I don't have time this morning to explain all the mysteries and nuances of prayer, but what I long for us to do this morning is to reclaim our role as co-rulers with God and bringing his kingdom through prayer. That's my desire this morning. Tyler Staten says this, prayer is the recovery of our role in God's created order, the recovery of our true identity and the relationship that defines that identity to us. Now, Stepping into this reality of praying and partnering with God, we must understand something that Eugene Peterson calls the middle voice. Eugene Peterson says this, prayer and spirituality feature participation, the complex participation of God and the human, his will and our will. We do not abandon ourselves to the stream of grace and drown in the ocean of love, losing identity. We do not pull the strings to activate God's operations in our lives, subjecting God nor are we manipulated by God. We are involved in the action and participate in its results, but do not control or define it. This is the middle voice. Prayer takes place in the middle voice. Here's what Eugene Peterson is essentially saying. One framework of thinking about prayer is that God is going to do what God's going to do already, and when I pray, he just changes me to that. That's one framework of thinking. The other framework of thinking is God is like the pagan gods, and when we pray, we manipulate him to get him to do what we want uh, him to do for us. Like if we pray hard enough and use the right words and sacrifice enough, and get, then he'll finally bend his will to ours. 
These are both unbiblical visions of prayer. It is a partnership. It is both our will and God's will being aligned underneath the kingdom vision. Yes, we are changed by prayer, but God also changes from our prayers. It is this co-partnership together, and this is learning to pray in the middle voice. Now, we've established a theology of partnership. Now we must understand the nature of the work that we are in. Brace yourselves, newsflash, we are at war, and prayer is warfare. Now, you might think, that's a little dramatic, right? You may think that, and I hear you in that, but this is a biblical picture of what prayer looks like. I, I, I want you to think about and contemplate on Paul's words where he says this in Ephesians 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul is super clear here. Your enemy is not flesh and blood. So there's no, like, coming together to pick at a certain individual or thing that's happening that's going to take away evil. It is the ideologies, it is the powers behind the workers of evil that continue to progress it forward, right? Even if you take out a leader of an ungodly regime, the regime continues with just a new leader because it's ideas behind it. There's forces, there's powers behind it. And this is how Paul calls us to see the world. Now I realize like we're super enlightened, we're college educated, like dude, are you really talking about like demons and spirits and forces? This is the biblical author's mindset. And you are pretty naive to not go into the world in the darkest places and realize there is a very present evil. You are too sheltered if you cannot see evil present in the world. If you think it is merely humans scheming, you have not been face to face with true evil. And this is what Paul calls us to see. That our enemy is, ever na is never actually another human being, but it's the forces at play behind them. It is the one who pulls the strings behind them. That is our true enemy. So how do you fight this enemy? Right? There's no like, you know, meet me downtown, bro. We're going to throw hands. It's like there's no fighting the enemy that way, right? There's no like acquiring a militia or anything of that nature. Paul gives two ways that we fight. The first in Ephesians 6 is to equip ourselves with the armor of God. Now, this is such an awesome passage of scripture that has been, like, just ruined because of, like, cardboard cutouts and songs and all that kind of stuff. And this is not to knock those things. They're good. They serve their purpose. But this is, like, some warrior stuff happening here that Paul's describing. Now, here's what I want you to notice about the armor of God. We don't have time to go into all of them. But almost all of them are defensive. None of them are offensive. So the first thing Paul says is to equip ourselves with defensive realities, like the breastplate of righteousness, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, the belt of truth, all that other stuff. Then Paul says the offensive thing is to then pray in the spirit at all times. He says, first, equip yourself with the armor of God, defensive, then pray in the spirit at all times. And then Paul goes on to say all kinds of prayers. Pray for me, pray for them. Continue praying, don't stop. Pray. This is your offensive weapon, is that we are to pray. So if we understand that we are in warfare, we would take prayer much more seriously. Small scene in the, in the scriptures to paint this portrait. 
I've said this before, but I'll say it again. If you're used to it, just get ready for another one. But it's a scene in the life of Daniel in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel is working for Babylon, an ungodly, oppressive ruler, and he's in there subverting the culture subtly, beautifully. He's, a, he's, in high pli- he's in high places with positions of power and authority, and he's standing in this gap between faithfulness to God and working for an unjust system. And in the middle of all this, Daniel was faithful in prayer. This is what ultimately gets him thrown in the lion's den, is his, 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 his willingness to continue to pray. And there's a scene in Daniel 10 where Daniel is praying for, for something and does not get a response from the Lord for several weeks. Then suddenly... An angel shows up to Daniel in Daniel 10 and is like, hey, dude, sorry about that. I came as soon as you prayed, but we were just fighting with the prince of Persia for the last 21 days. Anyways, God heard your prayer. And then the story just moves on. And it's like, okay, time out. What? Right? I prayed. 21 days later, you come in a sweat, hotty mess saying, hey, sorry, we were just fighting the prince of Persia. Called Michael down. He helped out. Big guns. Took him out. I got to come. Sorry for the delay, bro. Like, that's just business as usual, right? Daniel lets us into the cosmic warfare that's at place. What Daniel experiences is just praying in his room and then silence. What's actually happening is a cosmic warfare. That these angelic beings were dispatched at the moment, but were wrestling with principalities and powers that rule over this world. You know what Jesus calls the Satan, the enemy? The prince of the power of the air. He is the prince of this world. So that Persia has this demonic being who oversees it. The, the Satan, the enemy, oversees all of the earth, and God is constantly at war with him. You have no idea what's happening on the other side of reality when you pray. You have no idea. But it feels just like, well, maybe he didn't hear me. And we don't understand wars breaking out on behalf of the kingdom of God. And so... We are invited to pray and to pray in Jesus' name. Now, for us to see um, the reality of God's kingdom come, we must learn to pray in Jesus' name. And, and here's what the biblical authors mean by that. First, John 14, 14. Jesus makes this promise. You can ask me for anything, notice the caveat, in my name, and I will what? Do it. This does not mean... God slid over a blank check and said, fill it in with what you want. You know, just, you know, Bugatti, Mercedes Benz, just throw it in there, bro. You know, whatever. I'll do it. No, the caveat is in my name. We've come to think of that in prayer as like the tagline at the end. You know, you say all the things and do all the things and in Jesus' name, amen. Right? And that's like the way of like, it's the stamp on it. It's the sign on the dotted line. It's the seal on the edge and off to heaven it goes. Not what the biblical authors mean. Um, Preet Greg defines what to pray in Jesus' name means. To pray in the name of Jesus means asking for things that are, consi- that are consistent with his character and aligned with his purpose. This is what it means to pray in Jesus' name, is to pray in alignment with his heart. And so as we learn to pray in Jesus' name in that way, we begin to see victory. We begin to see God move because we are praying in alignment with the kingdom. Our will and God's will are aligning in what he longs to do in the earth. And that's how we see progress. That's how we see things make way is when we learn to pray in Jesus' name. But this is also why in that same prayer in Matthew 6, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray this. 
and deliver us from evil. Jesus wants you to realize that if you understand that you are in a warfare, you'll learn to begin to start praying for protection, to be delivered from the evil one. N.T. Wright, it's one of my favorite lines, says this, deliver us from evil is to inhale the victory of the cross and thereby to hold the line for another moment, another hour, another day against the forces of destruction within ourselves and the world. So what am I getting at here? And all of the stuff that we learned, it's in this simple phrase, we must stand in the gap. The word that we've typically used for this in the Christian church is the word intercession or intercessory prayers. And the simple understanding of intercession is literally to stand in the gap. The idea is to stand in the gap between the king and the kingdom and our current reality until no gap remains. It means for us to pray God's kingdom to come until it does. And to paint this picture, one more scene, but this time from the life of Moses. The Israelites are, are, are ambushed by the Amalekites, and they're getting whooped, right? So Moses, instead of being at the front of the battlefield, realizes God is calling him to pray. So he goes and stands on the side of the mountain, and he lifts his arms to pray. And as he prays, the tide turns. Israelites start to win. Moses is kind of old and hasn't really been hitting shoulders lately. So his arms start to fall. And as his arms start to fall, the Israelites start losing. So he brings two guys up, Aaron and Hur, and they come and they hold his arms up for him. And they get him a rock that he can sit on. So now he's sitting down and they're holding up his arms. And as his arms stay lifted, the Israelites overcome the enemy. And this is the picture of intercession. That we lift our hands on behalf of others and we see God breaking in with his kingdom. We see him overcome the enemy. This is the image of intercession, and this is the very thing that God calls us true. Richard Foster has this line about intercession that I love so much. He says this, if we truly love people, we would desire for them far more than is within our power to give them, and this will lead us to prayer. Intercession is the way of loving others. You want to love someone else well? Stand in the gap on their behalf. And that will mean much more than anything you could do elsewhere. And so this is our invitation. Now, I want to close with this thing. And it's this. What could happen if our church took up the mantle of intercession? What could happen? I mean, think about the stories we've told you of, of governments toppling, of entire systemic change of the hearts of people being turned, all because people came to pray, to contend, to stand in the gap. The invitation is being extended to you to partner with God. Will you say yes? Will you jump into that? Will you stand in the gap? I want to close with one last quote. It's from Walter Wink. He says this, Intercessory prayer is the spiritual defiance of what is in the way of what God has promised. Intercession visualizes an alternative future to the one apparently faded by the momentum of current forces. And prayer infuses the air of a time yet to be into the suffocating atmosphere of the present. And here's the line. Are you ready? 
History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. All of the stories that I've told you were not in a reality until people stood in the gap. What could happen? What could happen if we stood in the gap? What could happen if we said no more and drew a line in the sand and said we refuse to surrender a city, a generation, a people to the warfare of the enemy, but we choose to step into that warfare and say, God, we will stand in the gap until your kingdom comes. What could possibly happen? What could shift? What could change? What could we see unleashed into God's good world if we would take up the mantle of prayer? And this is the dream that is stirring in our hearts, is that we would become a people who take prayer seriously. There would not just be some proliferary thing on the side that we do occasionally or when things go bad, but it would be the, the foundation of what our church is built upon. When I was in Colorado recently, I got a prophetic word about this prayer room. I had shared with a friend, a new friend, what God was doing and what we longed to do. And, and, and my buddy, uh, I call him a frothy charismatic, you know, my kind of people. He likes to hear the rhema word of God and come and share it. And he comes to me and he says, hey, bro, I feel like I got a word for your prayer room. So I said, dude, please tell me. He says, Here, I saw this mental image of embers of a fire. And he said that, that, the, that, that the prayer room would be this place of embers and that anything that, that we would do would be placed on those embers of the prayer room and it would catch flame. And it would burn bright for the city, and it would burn bright for people, and it become this beacon. And that the prayer room is those coals, is those embers, catching flame to whatever we put upon it. And so this is our prayer, that what would happen in that room would be embers, and what would happen here now would be embers of what God would long to set ablaze in our time and place. I am not satisfied Surrendering the world to the current forces that exist. I long to see the kingdom come as Jesus invites us into it. And I believe this may be stirring in you. And it's not going to happen by one person or two people, but a collective people coming to say, no more. No more will we surrender our city over to the powers that be, but we will stand in the gap till God's kingdom comes. Would you stand with me? So, as we like to say here, we're going to do the stuff. We're not just going to talk about the Jesus stuff. We're going to do the Jesus stuff. And so this morning, there was a group of people gathered here praying for you. Coming in this morning, desperately needing a cup of coffee, tired as, you know, who knows what, whatever. They're praying for you. And as they prayed, we felt like we saw a couple of things, and we just sensed that there's particular areas that God longs to move right here, right now. And so, one of the first words that we got was about forgiveness. We sensed this morning that someone right now may be caught in unforgiveness, and it's weighing your soul down. It's weighing heavy on you. And Jesus is inviting you to come and to forgive those who've wronged you, those who've hurt you, those who have sinned against you, that you may be set free. 
we also got the other side of that coin that maybe some of you have walked in here with guilt, shame, and struggling with the very things that you have done, and you've come in this morning needing forgiveness yourself. And you've been struggling to even forgive yourself for the things that have been done. This morning, Jesus wants to set you free into his grace, into his forgiveness. The other picture that we got is that someone is in a season of waiting. You've been in a season of waiting for something. And to be honest, you've come in this morning weak and tired. And the, the, the scripture that came to mind was that in Isaiah, where he says that those who wait on the Lord, he shall renew their strength. And so this morning, as you are weary in the waiting, we believe God wants to renew your strength. And lastly was that of somebody, uh, it was an image of a hotel, and somebody feeling like they are homeless that they do not have a home, to come and to find your home in God, that you've been waiting for a home, but your home is found in him. Now, if any of these words have resonated with you on any capacity, we want to invite you to say yes to what God is doing. Say yes to what the Spirit is speaking to you right now. By embodying and coming forward and putting your hands open, saying, yes, God, I want more of you. I receive that word. That's me. I need that right now. And to do that. And, and there's nothing special about anything up here in the front. It is just an embodied way of you saying, Jesus, I hear you, and I want more of it. And so we want to invite you in risk to come forward. And what's going to happen is as you come forward, and we're going to ask you just to put your hands out as a sign of saying, I want to receive from God. Trained people of prayer will come to pray for you. They're not going to interview you. They're not going to ask you a million questions. They just want to bless the work that God is already doing in you. And so this is just a sign of saying, Jesus, I hear your voice. And I respond to you. And so as we do that, the worship team's going to play. Now maybe none of those words resonated with you. I want to call you to stand in the gap for those who that word resonated with now. I want to ask you to stand in the gap for those who God may be currently speaking to. That he needs to shift something in their heart. That he needs to instill courage in them. That they may respond and experience all that God longs for them to encounter today. Would you stand in the gap on their behalf? So if any of those resonate with you, please come forward and respond. We'd love to pray with you.